Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome back to the Saturday Blitz Podcast, everybody. I'm Zach Bogalki here once again with John Mitchell. This week, we're concluding our look at the 2019 College Football Conference previews with our dive into the SEC. Uh, we're going to be going with the same format we have the past couple weeks, using the media preseason poll for our order of talking about each team bottom to top. We'll be starting with the SEC East and then diving into the SEC West before talking about conference championship game predictions, um, some thoughts about teams that might make it into the college football playoff in New Year's Six, and finishing with our offensive and defensive <coughs> players of the year. Um, great to be back with you again, John, especially since I'm talking to you here from the East Coast for the first time. Yeah, for the first time we're recording a podcast that's earlier where I am than it is where you are, which is very strange for both of us. Yeah, so bear with us, everybody, if I uh, yawn in the middle of things or uh, whatnot. I'm still adjusting to the time zone. Um, but yeah, so let's let's dive into uh, the SEC East is what we're starting with here. Um, it, the first team, I'm sure nobody's going to be surprised about this, that the media poll picked to finish dead last is the Vanderbilt Commodores. Um, obviously, Vanderbilt has, uh, you know, an uphill battle pretty much every year in the SEC. Um, even being in the SEC East, which has in recent years been the weaker of the two divisions, it's really hard for Vanderbilt to, to sort of punch up in that division. Um, given the, you know, holes that they have throughout their roster this year, John, do you think there's any chance of finishing any higher than seventh or even getting to a bowl? I think there's definitely a chance to finish, um, bowl eligibility and climb out as a seller. It's going to be an uphill battle, like you said, as it always is at Vanderbilt. But Derek Mason's a quality football coach. His guys come to play every single week. They're usually good for an upset or a near upset every year. If you remember last year, week three, one of the craziest games of the season was they went to Notre Dame and almost upset the Fighting Irish in South Bend, which would have been the probably biggest upset in college football last season had they actually pulled that off. Had a real shot at the end, so they're always there. And one thing you got to give Vanderbilt credit for too is it, back at, before even you know before the Mason era, back when James Franklin was there, and even before that, they always schedule up. They're not a team that looks to try to steal you know three or four wins out of conference by scheduling lower teams. You know they played Notre Dame last year. They go to Purdue this year. They play a quality. Um, group of five team in Northern Illinois as well this year. So, you know, they always do that. You don't see them trying to steal those three or four out of conference wins and then try to, you know, grab two or three in conference and get bowl eligibility. They really do challenge themselves. Um, so it'll be tough. I think the loss of Kyle Shermer at quarterback is huge. So figuring out whether it's going to be uh, Riley Neal or Deuce Wallace taking the snaps, Riley Neal, the ball state transfer, who's got a load of experience, um, and then Deuce Wallace, who is a guy that's pretty um, experienced, or not experienced, but a pretty highly touted guy himself. So they've got the talent. I think it's all going to be – I think you lean on Keyshawn Vaughn at running back. Yeah. He's one of the top returning backs in the country. You lean on him, and you hope that 
you hope that the Derek that Derek Mason can figure things out on defense because they kind of slipped last year defensively back to 99th in total defense last year, which very unlike a Mason coach unit, he's always been a defense first guy. Uh, but they only returned four starters from last year's unit, so let's see if they can, you know, move forward on that side of the ball, especially with some key losses like Joan Williams at cornerback was a big loss for them. So I think it's going to be an uphill battle, but they're going to be like usual a Commodores team that's right around five or six wins, maybe going into the final weekend of the regular season in Knoxville against Tennessee fighting for bowl eligibility. Yeah. I I'm with you in terms of the defense. I think, um, you know, the slip back last year is a little troublesome. It's a little worrisome for that team, especially given that they have, you know, only four or five defensive starters returning. Um, I think that's going to be really critical. Obviously, in the SEC, defense wins championships, defense wins games. And having that much flux on the defensive side of the ball, especially having regressed as they did, that's that's the biggest point of worry for me. So I'm I'm hesitant to say they're going to go anywhere further than seventh, given that. And I, I I think, as you said, with their schedule being what it is, bowl eligibility is just really tough for this team this year. If they do, though, I think you're absolutely right. It's going to be Keyshawn Vaughn just toting the rock for them, you, you know, especially as he stepped up in the second half of the season last year. It just, um, you know, he exploded over those last five games, just, tur- you know, averaged, I think it was like 150 yards a game over those last five games. And, you know, Vanderbilt really started to look more explosive when that happened. And so I, I think leaning on him some more, um, you know, just even more over the course of an entire season and letting him be the bell cow for them is, you know, they're going to rot, you'd live or die by that. So. Yeah, I agree. The division is so tough to top to bottom. Like the East has kind of always been, the lesser division in the SEC, but there's a lot of quality teams. And they were talking about a Vanderbilt team that's probably going to finish seventh, but also wouldn't be surprised if they went to Purdue early in the season and knocked off the Boilermakers just as they almost knocked off the Irish last year. They're a solid football team. They're not going to roll over. There's no off weeks for teams like Florida and Georgia at the top of the conference. When they've got to play a team like Vanderbilt, they better come, they better buckle their chin straps and come to play because Vanderbilt's the type of team that can pull off that big upset, and we've seen them do it for years. Yeah, I think that's definitely the sort of role they're going to be playing is that spoiler role, really trying to catch teams off guard. And so if they have any chance of stealing enough wins to get to six, it's going to be because they they did exactly that. They pulled off, um, you know, just really big spoilers along the way. And then another team in that same vein is Kentucky. You know, last year they they went 10-3. and three. They got to 10 wins. And, you know, I think it was really a crowning achievement of what Mark Stoops has been starting to build there in Lexington. And at the same time, now he has to do it without you know, he has to try to replicate it without many of the players that got him there in the first place. Um, This team has just lost a a wealth of talent, uh, you know, across the board. They only have four starters back on both sides of the ball. Um, You know, losing somebody like a Benny Snell Jr. is just a huge loss for a team like this that 
can't recruit at the same level of some of the other SEC schools. And so, you know, that's really the question I see coming into this year. Obviously, they have, um, you know, the ability, I think, to get back to bowl eligibility, but coming anywhere near uh, the top of that division is going to be really tough for this Wildcats team this year. What's your read on them? Well, I like, you mentioned, you know, it was really a breakthrough year for Mark Stoops in Lexington, Kentucky, won 10 games for the first time in 41 years, yeah. culminating with a, you know, an impressive Citrus Bowl win over Penn State, a game most people picked them to lose. Uh, they also beat Florida for the first time, ended that 31-year losing streak to the Gators, and doing that in the swamp after coming so close in recent years was such a, you know, a big deal for that really impressive class of seniors that Kentucky had. And that's the thing with a team like Kentucky. What Mark Stoops has built there is he's building with senior classes. You know, he gets a big recruiting class. He gets guys like Benny Snell, who were four-year players in the program. And, you know, not to mention Josh Allen on the other side of the ball, who was probably the most feared pass rusher in college football last year, was a defensive player of the year, was a top-five draft pick. So losing two of the, you know, all-time best players in Kentucky football history, those guys aren't going to be easily replaced. It's going to be a big loss. I, the media is very low on the Wildcats this year, picking them near the cellar. I'm a little bit higher, I think. I still think there's a, a decent bit of talent on the team. I think it'll really depend on Terry Wilson's growth and maturation um, as a passer. He's got the ability uh, with his legs to really make plays, but they won't have a Benny Snell to lean on in the running game this year. Uh, a guy I really like on Kentucky's offense that I would, I really hope to see them be a little more creative and getting him the ball is Lynn Bowden uh, mm -hmm. at wide receiver. I think he's a guy that could maybe take some wildcat snaps at quarterback, line up in the backfield, get some handoffs, uh, move all over the field because he's easily their most dynamic playmaker. He was um, – he was fifth in the SEC last year in all-purpose yards per game. So he's a guy that can really be a real dynamic threat. And now with Benny Snell moving on to the NFL, you got to think more of the workload's going to be on Bowden's shoulders because, you know, smart coaches get the ball in their playmakers' hands as many times as they can. And Bowden just being used as a wide receiver and only getting five touches a game just doesn't seem smart to me, particularly when you have a quarterback who's a bit limited as a passer. So I think they got to find creative ways to get him the football so he can make plays for this offense. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good case to be making for Bowden. He's he's just really one of the, you know, top possession guys in the country. And, and the more you can get the ball into his hands, especially with what they've lost, you know, lean on the talent you do have for sure. And, you know, Mark Stoops and his crew are, are smart enough, I think, to do that. Um. That said, you know, losing a guy like Allen, I'm glad you really brought him up. Also, you know, guys like uh, Jordan Jones at weak side linebacker, that's a that's a huge loss as well. Um, but, you know, I think having somebody like Cash Daniel there at middle linebacker is going to sort of ease those losses a little bit. Um, that said, I think there is going to be a bit of drop off on that defense just with how much they've lost there. Uh, you you know, they only have, um, you, you know, I think I said it was four or five defensive starters back, four of them, and only 39% of their productivity from last year is back on that side of the ball. So, again, a lot like Vanderbilt, it's just going to be one of those things where you need a rapid defensive growth spurt to have any real chance of getting toward bowl eligibility and, 
you know, playing any sort of spoiler role in that division. Yeah, they were a top 25 defense last year, and that's what really helped them bust out to 10 wins, and they're going to need something. You know, there's going to be a little bit of a drop-off, I'm sure, but them to be close. What helps them is, I think, their schedule, because they get teams they're going to be competing with in the middle of the pack, like Missouri and Tennessee will have to come to Lexington. They get Florida at home in September, and those kind of games really help. And they got a pretty weak out-of-conference slate. You're looking at Toledo, Eastern Michigan, UT Martin, and Louisville, yeah. all at home. So it's most likely they're going to end up 4-0 and at a conference, depending on what happens in their rivalry game at the end of the year and how quickly Scott Satterfield can write the ship at Louisville. But then you just need two conference wins at that point to get to six wins. So it would be a big surprise if they weren't able to at least get bowl eligible. Yeah, I think that's fair. They really did sort of stack their schedule well to, you know, at least make for a happy enough season. And I think in a year like this where you are, you know, they're not a team that's just going to retool like we see some teams right. in the SEC be able to do. It is a rebuilding year there. Um, I, I think you bringing up the fact that they do really depend on getting the good classes in and then just riding it to that senior year. Um, this obviously is not one of those. Uh, just, you know, this is a growth year. This is a, a year to get a lot of this talent up to speed so that a couple years down the road they can have another one of those, you know, sort of magical seasons. And I think, you know, that's really sort of the sweet spot for Mark Stoops. If he can get them to the point where they're having a 10-win season every three to five years, that's better than Kentucky has been in a long, long time. Yep, absolutely. Now, that said, obviously expectations in Kentucky are usually focused more toward basketball than football, let's be honest. A school that... um definitely cares about its football and cares about it a damn lot is Tennessee. They've been picked fifth by the coaches in the media poll. And, uh, you know, they're a team that's, you know, for the past several years, it feels like every year for the past three or four years, we've heard this is Tennessee's year to make that breakthrough. This is the year they're going to do something. This, you know, the, the SEC East is down this year. Can Tennessee swoop in? And it just feels like, you know, we keep playing that same game over and over again. And I think that's part of why the media dropped them as low as they did. Um, because there are some pieces and parts there that, that can make some kind of a difference. But at the same time, I, I, I don't know. They have to actually do it on the field before they can before they're going to get the benefit of the doubt there. And I think that's really what I read into this when I saw them drop to fifth below teams like Missouri and South Carolina that are effectively the same team and, and probably weaker offensively than Tennessee. Well, I've been drinking the Tennessee Kool-Aid all offseason, which is really weird for me to say, to be honest. But... Um, no team in the Power Five returns more production on offense or defense in Tennessee. They return 83% of their total production from last season's team. Yeah. Now, we've talked about in the past, sometimes that's good. Sometimes maybe not as much. You're talking about a Tennessee team that won five games last year. So, But they were an extremely young team. Jeremy Pruitt, I think, is a very good football coach. I think he's doing really good things on the recruiting trail. And I think he's got things moving in the right direction. Tennessee was... 
just inconsistent last year. You know, they went to Auburn and pulled off a win on the Plains, which was big. They beat Kentucky late in November, 24 to seven before falling on their face uh, against Missouri and Vanderbilt to, you know, lose out on bowl eligibility. So getting that consistency and consistency comes with a more experienced team. And that's something they'll have this year. Jarrett Garantano, I think is a really good quarterback. I'm uh, very high on him this year, coming back for his junior season. Um, he was very effective last year when healthy, beat out Keller Christ, who a lot of people thought would kind of be a shoe-in for the ball starting quarterback job last year. So Garantano's good. I mean, Ty Chandler and Tim Jordan are a really effective running back duo. And they got one of the better receiving trios in college football, I think, with Marquez Callaway, Josh Palmer, and Jawan Jennings, three really gifted receivers. So they got a lot of talent on that side of the ball. Can Pruitt get the defense to the level that he's accustomed to coaching, I think is a big question mark um, for the team. You know, they're talking about what they were top 50-ish last year. If they can get more towards top 25 total defense, you're talking about a team that I think could be a real threat at the top of the Eastern Division. Probably not quite good enough to take overtake Georgia in the East, but the, I could see them competing for the number two spot with Florida if things come together in year two for Pruitt. I really am high on this team. I think they've got the talent to really make a push up the standings. I, I, I think it, again, you know, like you, you, you mentioned, it does come down to, to getting their defense online. Um, the offense, as long as Garantano makes that next leap, it has every one of the tools it needs to be a really effective SEC offense. Like you mentioned, they've got all of their top three running backs back. They've got all five of their top pass catchers from last year. You know, last year's starting tight end is back. Seven of the eight guys that started games on the offensive line are back. You just have a wealth on that side of the ball. I, I, I think there's really no worries. If if Tennessee doesn't have a top 15, top 20 offense this year, it's an indictment on the coaching staff. Um, you just have too much talent there not to. And so, yeah, it really does fall on that defense sort of clicking into place. And especially it clicks on, you know, it depends on the defensive line coming through. That's where they, they had their biggest number of losses on the defense at the same time uh, I'm not going to mince words the defensive line kind of sucked last year for Tennessee so you know just like you said it could be addition by subtraction in this case if they get guys who are just you know better fits for the scheme um, who really have a better grasp of what they're trying to do in that in that system it could actually benefit Tennessee last year that they had that turnover, you know, right on the defensive front. Right. We're losing Emmett Gooden on that defensive line recently and to an injury, it looks like it's going to be season ending is a big loss for the balls too. Like you said, they lost a lot. So they got a lot of young guys filling in and Gooden was a, you know, a returning senior who had, wasn't a starter last year, but had a lot of experience. So it's all going to depend, you know, like I said, Pruitt's brought in some really impressive recruiting classes so far, but he's going to have to really rely at least for depth purposes on a lot of young players on the defensive side of the ball. Yeah. And that can sometimes be, you know, obviously difficult for uh, young players to adjust to, to life that quickly, but he's going to have to rely on some of those guys. Some of the guys like Henry Tioto O and some of the big recruits that they got this year are really going to have to step in and at least play some role on the team. 
Yeah, no doubt about that. I think this is a team that has a really high upside, and it, it's really going to depend on um, how quickly these players integrate in and, and how quickly they can get up to speed and up to speed at an SEC level, which, let's face it, that's, you know, that's a, a different gear than a lot of, you know, most levels of college football even. So, right. so um, you know, on that note, I, again, high ceiling, very low possibility with the floor with this team as well. You know, they're a team that, you know, things could go sour really quickly. And next thing you know, it could it could get ugly, especially because they have to play, you know, at Florida, at Alabama. I think also another really tough sort of sneaky game on their schedule is at Missouri. Um and I think that could sort of be one that determines which one of those, you know, teams makes noise in the in the division this year. Right. No, I'd agree with that. That's a good point. So, you know, moving on, I, I think we've, we, we've probably spoken our piece about Tennessee. Let's move on to that, that pivot point in the poll, in the media poll. Number four was South Carolina. And, uh, you know, it, it, Will Muschamp has been... Um, honestly, he's been an okay coach at South Carolina. I'm, you know, I, I think he, we talk about coaches getting the plug really quickly. And, um, you know, I think in coaching terms, that wasn't necessarily the issue at Florida with him. When we look at what he's actually done here. Um, so that said, you know, doing okay at, at South Carolina means you're finishing fourth or fifth in the division every year. And you can get plenty of coaches to do that. Um, do you think there's any chance that Will Muschamp could be on the the hotter seat coming into this season? I do. I don't know that he's a guy that's really been talked about as being on the hot seat coming in, but South Carolina was really supposed to break through last year. They was really talked about as a sleeper in the SEC East. A lot of people thought they had a shot to finish second in the East behind Georgia, and they slipped a little bit. Um, and man, I I don't know how, I don't know how many people watched the Belk Bowl last year, but that looked like a football team that had absolutely quit. Yeah, I mean they were heavy favorites against Virginia, and they lost twenty eight to nothing. I mean that was a team that had just absolutely no desire to be in that game. Didn't look like they even really stepped off the bus. Not like they had quit. And I wonder if that's something, if that's a sour enough note, if that's going to carry over to this season or not. And if that's the team that shows up all season long, then this South Carolina team is going to struggle to even get bowl eligible. And if they miss a bowl game and end up slipping to four and eight or five and seven, with the talent that they have with a guy like Jake Bentley, who's been, you know, touted as a future NFL quarterback, if they can't get over the hump with him, that's going to really look bad on Muschamp. I think he's a a solid coach. I think he's a good coordinator. I just think he's proven now just to be in over his head as a head coach. And, you know, that's, you know, it happens to some guys. Some guys are better at coordinators, and I think that's really what his future holds. I don't think he's a a really capable head coach. You know, obviously he didn't do very well at Florida. He's been pretty mediocre at South Carolina so far. So, and I mean, this is South Carolina program that recently under Steve Spurrier was winning pretty big, you know, so they had gotten kind of accustomed to being competitive in the East and falling back to just 
mediocrity like this isn't particularly going to sit well following, you know, a legendary football coach like Steve Spurrier. So they've also got to replace a guy in Debo Samuel on offense, which is, I mean, he's irreplaceable. He's one of the most exciting players in college football, really a home run threat every time he touched the ball, whether he was returning a kick or whether he was at receiver. So losing him is is really tough. There's still a lot of talent on this team. It's just how far can Muschamp take them? And I, I don't think he's probably going to be in danger of losing his jobs. I do think the Gamecocks will squeak out a bowl game, but I I don't th- see them going much further. And I think he'll be on the on the hottest of hot seats entering 2020. Well, and I think I I really think that even if this team is good, they could still miss out on a bowl game. You know, they could be better than they were last year in terms of like you know advanced metrics. And still finish worse. I mean, this is a team that has to play Alabama. They have to play at Georgia. They play Clemson. Um, They play a bunch of other teams. I think it's four or five teams that are projected in the top 20, 25 or whatnot in, you know, S&P. So really looking at those advanced metrics, they're playing a, a murderer's row of teams this year. Um, You know, those seven teams right there could be seven losses. They could play them tight and still have seven losses there. And yeah. So, you know, I think in that regard, I'm hesitant to say that all falls on Muschamp. That's just a really damn tough schedule. And I, I think it could cost him his job very much so, but I... I'm hesitant to say that he necessarily deserves to lose it if they go five and seven against a schedule like they have this year. That's fair. I mean, your crossover opponents from the West or Alabama at home, and then they go to A&M late in November. Yep. That's really tough. At a conference, you open the season against North Carolina, a rivalry game in a neutral site, which they should be favored in, but I don't think that's a something you look at as an automatic W either. And, they did themselves no favor scheduling Appalachian State in no. November either. That's not – most SEC teams will be looking for cupcake week, and they'll be drawing App State, yeah. which is going to give them a damn fight, if nothing else. South Carolina should have the talent to be able to win that game, but it ain't going to come easy. So I think that's a great point. They got one of the toughest schedules in college football, and it's going to be really tough. Six wins would probably be – a really good outcome for them this year. And they probably would take a step in the right direction with six wins. But the problem is a lot of fans aren't going to see it that way. Six and six is still six and six, regardless of the schedule. Exactly. Because six and six can quickly become six and seven. And then you've got a losing record and, and what are we even doing here? Right. (laughs) I, I, I think, you know, I, I think it's one of those things, especially with Muschamp, that you can, you know, flip the coin either way and read, you know, read him how the coin comes up. You can either read it as he's, you know, he he's a mediocre guy who's fallen up into a couple of jobs, or he's, you know, a good coach who's been sort of hamstrung by circumstances that aren't necessarily inside a coach's control. I think both of those things are probably pretty true about him and about this team this year. Right. No, I'd agree. So that said, um, you know, the team right above uh, South Carolina in the media poll was Missouri. And obviously, you know, there's been a lot going on with this Missouri program this year or this off season in terms of, um, 
you know, getting hit by the NCAA with, um, you know, postseason ban. Um, don't necessarily know what that's going to, to, to come to yet. You know, there's still an appeal. We're still waiting to f- hear the final resolution. But let's face it, Missouri's probably not playing in a bowl game this year. And yet none of these players decided to leave. You know, none of I, I think only one guy decided to transfer under the NCAA's policy of allowing players on sanctioned teams to move freely. Um, and everybody stayed, you know, even Kelly Bryant, who came in from Clemson, decided to play out his final year there and not have a chance at a bowl game in his final year or what likely looks like that. So I think just on that level, you've got a really solid team in the truest sense of the word there. Guys who really want to play with each other, want to play for each other. That's going to make a huge difference in what's probably going to be a pretty trying season there in uh, Columbia. So, I think that's a great point. I'm glad you brought that up too, because I think that's really a testament to Barry Odom and the program he's built. You know, he hasn't had the most on the field success. You're talking about a guy who's 19 and 19 in three years at Missouri, and has had plenty of heat. But it's obvious that his players love him and want to play for him, because you could have easily seen a mass exodus of plenty of players on this team that would have gotten looks at some of the best programs. Um, Albert Aquagbanum, the tight end, one of the probably top tight end prospects for next year's draft, could have gone anywhere. There would have been plenty of teams wanting to bring him in to an offense that he might have even thrived more in. And then getting Kelly Bryant to come in amid the sanctions. And, you know, hopefully it works out for him. It would be nice if Missouri was able to appeal and get that because, you know, this – the players on this team deserve to be able to compete for a bowl game, and they could be a really interesting dark horse in the SEC East race if eligible to be considered. It wouldn't surprise me if they ended up coming up and finishing second or maybe even toppling Georgia and taking the East wouldn't be too big of a, a surprise. And then, you know, still the second-place team ends up going because they wouldn't be able to, to go in. But I think it's a, a fascinating team. Kelly Bryant and Larry Roundtree in the backfield probably form a pretty devastating read option combo. Um, how has Bryant progressed as a passer? He's entering an offense that's been pretty pass happy over the last few years with Drew Locke. So they're going to be a little bit different uh, offensively this year because Bryant's not the passer Locke was, obviously, but he's still a very good player. And he's got a chip on his shoulder, you know? He was the forgotten guy. Everybody's kind of talked down on him for a year now after he transferred. Um, early in the season last year after losing his job to Trevor Lawrence, which we should point out is of no bad look on Kelly Bryant to lose out to Trevor Lawrence. He's not your typical freshman. This is a kid who set the college football world on fire as soon as he got in. He would have beat out most guys for that yeah. starting job. So that's not a knock on Kelly Bryant to have been relegated to that backup role. And good for him for taking his destiny into his own hands and getting this opportunity to really – you know, play one final year with an offense that can be very explosive. And even if they can't go to a bowl game, they should still be a team that's going to strike fear in the teams like Georgia and Florida at the top of the division. I mean, they beat Florida in November last year uh, pretty handily. So this Missouri team's got the firepower to really compete in the East, I think. Yeah. One thing that I think is really interesting is looking at their non-conference schedule. They do have a couple of interesting games on there. I'm not going to say that the West Virginia game is, you know, necessarily going to be the toughest game on their schedule, 
But, you know, when you're dealing with a, a program that's going through a coaching change like they are, it can it can bring up some, you know, it, it, it can make for some interesting sort of um, scouting and everything as you're trying to figure out how this team is going to perform around you. And then scheduling Troy to come to town was a big one as well. Um, you know, Troy is always what kind of like we talked about with App State, you know, um, is one of those teams. It's just a really tough out when you're playing a Sun Belt team. They did not do themselves any favors scheduling that game and uh, definitely not a cupcake. So I think if they do well, it's going to, I mean, that's the sort of thing that's going to reflect really well on Bryant and everybody else who's coming out draft eligible this year. So if nothing else, they don't get to a bowl. This team's going to set people up to get paid next year. Right. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. I think they've definitely got the the horses in the stable to really be uh, a competitive team. So it remains to be seen. We'll see how the appeal goes. I would say it's probably unlikely that um, their appeal gets overturned, that their bowl ban gets overturned. But still going to be a fun team to watch. They'll still get 12 games to showcase their talent. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's really rare that, you know, you appeal to the same people who gave you the punishment in the first place and they suddenly, you know, change their mind. Um, Right. It's not like you can go to, you know, mom says no and then you can go to dad. You're going back to mom again to ask her a second time. That's what's happening here. So you don't even have an, you know, a third party to appeal to there. So, yeah, I don't think that's happening, Tigers fans. Um, enjoy the 12 games for all they're worth and accept that there's no Baker's dozen in your future. Um, right. So, yeah, uh, you know, I think they still, you know, could be a huge noisemaker in that division this year, that said. Um, another team that can make noise, obviously, is Florida. They were picked to finish runner-up behind Georgia in the SEC East. And I think this is a team that could... You know, at the end of the season, we started to see things click a little bit more with the Gators. The offense really started to figure out what it was trying to do. You know, Felipe Franks picked up his game. He started to really figure out what his role was in Dan Mullen's offense. And I think if that happens over the course of an entire season, Florida always, you know, has the raw parts to to make waves. Um, you know, they're just in a state where naturally you can, you know, get really good talent. Even if you're not, re- you know, the best recruiter in the world, you still got decent talent coming in. And this Florida team this year, uh, I, I, I think can make a lot, of, uh, a lot of noise. I think it's going to come down to their defense being, um, you know, being really just the the catalyst for everything, as you know, I, I've harped on several times already. That's that's just the nature of the business in the SEC. So as long as that you know that defense with eight starters returning, um, you know, continues to progress and really just give all the support in the world to that offense, that offense is starting to figure it out. Yeah, I. I think defensively, like you were saying, I think they might have the best defense in the entire SEC. They got a lot of talent back on that side of the ball. Guys like Jabari Zonega, uh, David Reese, 
And then at cornerback, C.J. Henderson might be the best cornerback in the entire country. Um, and Florida's had plenty of elite defensive backs over the years. So I think they'll take a step forward on defense. And I wouldn't be surprised if they took another step forward on offense. You mentioned Felipe Franks figuring out kind of his role. And really the thing that helped him last year is in Florida's offense as a whole is they were really efficient. Um, they were 18th in the country last year in offensive efficiency. Franks really took care of the football. He only threw six interceptions to 24 touchdowns, which is a huge step forward in his maturation as a quarterback. And the one thing Dan Mullen's always been able to do is groom quarterbacks. He's always been known as kind of the quarterback whisperer. Um, and, you know, we saw the, the teams he was able to field at Mississippi State and then getting the talent that you can get at a program like Florida, which no disrespect to – uh, Mississippi State, but you know, obviously, you're going to get more talent at Florida than you're going to get in Starkville. Um, and they were a huge success story. They went from winning four games to winning ten games in Mullen's first year. So that was a big turnaround. I think they opened a lot of eyes in the Peach Bowl when they thumped Michigan, when a lot of people thought the Wolverines would kind of roll over the Gators. So that was kind of an eye-opening game. It looked like things really had come together for Florida. They've got a really deep core of receivers for Franks. You look at guys like Van Jefferson and Tyreek Cleveland, Trevon Grimes, Kadarius Toney, Josh Hammond. I mean, as deep a receiving core as there is in the SEC, if not the entire country. Um, I think Florida is right there, and it, as it has so many times in the past, the world's largest outdoor cocktail party on the first weekend of November probably decides the SEC East. Most likely, yeah. I, I, it's, it's been that way the past couple, couple of years, and it'd be really surprising to see anything different there. As much as we've talked up other teams, you know, in this division, um, you know, drinking the Tennessee Kool-Aid, looking at what Missouri could do as a spoiler without a chance to get into the championship game, all of those different things said, it's probably going to be Georgia, Florida again. There's just uh, there's just too much, you know, for both of those teams going in their favor. I, I really do agree with that. Um, I think it's going to be really interesting to see them get to play Miami again as well. Um, just that shout out to the you know week zero kickoff game. Um, I'm really excited that it moved up. First and foremost, because it's going to just give us that primetime opportunity to just focus in and see where both of those teams are at. Um, and I think if Florida, you know, really just takes down Miami hard, it's going to open some eyes. It, 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 we're going to see Florida sort of launch up the polls in that instance, justified or not. It, it that's definitely going to happen and it's going to set them up favorably just for the rest of the season in terms of, uh, you know, being able to stay at or, you know, near the top of the division and near the top of the national races for one of those New Year's six spots. Right. And Florida's, you know, Florida's chasing Georgia. And on the other side of that, Georgia's chasing their own kind of white rabbit, right? They're chasing Alabama, and it's been two years in a row now that Georgia's really had Alabama on the ropes and come so close to, you know, getting over the top and winning the national championship two years ago and then winning the SEC championship last year, which would have propelled them into the playoff for the second straight year, only to see just I've, – I've been on the other side of those wins, and they've been yeah. magnificent, but I can – 
I can emphasize or I can empathize with um, Georgia fans in that I know how heartbreaking those two games have to have been on the other side of things to watch, you know, to lose a 13 to nothing lead the year before and then watch Jalen Hurts come off the bench last year and just rip their hearts out. It's been, I know it's been very difficult and I know Georgia's using that as full motivation this year. And a lot of, there's been a lot of rumors, a lot of, a lot of stuff people are talking about that Georgia's really ready this year. But I mean, we've heard that before. We heard that all of last year that they were ready to get their shot at Alabama and to take it back. So it's going to be interesting. There's obviously a lot of talent. Kirby Smart's recruiting as well as anyone in college football right now. The talent at Georgia is just absurd. We've heard it for years how much a sleeping giant in recruiting Georgia was, and he's really woken them up in that facet, and they're getting guys all over the place. With Jake Fromm back at quarterback, with DeAndre Swift, who might be the best running back in the country in my opinion, I think it all comes down to Georgia. If they're receivers, if they're young group of receivers after losing – you know, a lot of top guys from last year, guys like Riley Ridley and Miko Hardman and those kind of guys. Can the young guys step up? Will they get a guy like a George Pickens as a freshman to come in there and really make waves? That's what it's going to take, I think. And then defensively, there's obviously talent all over that side of the field. Do you think Georgia's going to be able to do that this year, Zach? Do you think they've got the guns to finally get the Alabama monkey off their back? And can Kirby Smart become the first Nick Saban assistant to finally slay the dragon? Uh, oh man, it, it's a tough it, it's a tough read. I think a big thing that has me hesitate there is the fact that both of their both their offense and defensive coordinators are new. Um, the fact that you know both Jim Cheney left and Mel Tucker left is, um, you know, a really it, it's going to make for some interesting transition. Obviously, smart promoted from within James Coley is no longer a co-coordinator, you know, he's just the coordinator now. So now that the training wheels are off and Cheney's off at Tennessee, what's that going to look like? Um, especially with, as you said, you know, breaking in a brand new receiving core. Um, I, Tyler Simmons is the only guy who caught multiple passes last year or more than, I think more than three. Other than that, like you said, Ridley Hardman, Jeremiah Holloman is gone. He was booted off the team this summer. So, um, you know, I, I think the combination of that kind of gives me pause as much as, you know, Jake Fromm is a great quarterback. Um, he needs guys to throw to to make it worth his while. And so it's going to require some rapid maturation from that that group. Um and that's going to fall on James Coley's head, you know, to get that up to speed really quickly. Um, and if that happens, this team obviously lights out no matter what they are the best team in the SEC East as it stands right now, even as they are adjusting to guys taking on new roles in the coaching staff. But I think it was also really smart, no pun intended, but I totally get it. It was totally smart on Smart's, uh, you know, behalf to 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 promote from within and let, you know, that culture just, uh, you know, have some continuity to it. I think if you bring in, you know, some hot coordinator from outside, you could get some results. But at the same time, the growth is in place. You know, it's continuing to grow. And, you know, Kirby Smart has seen it work at, you know, obviously at Alabama, he was one of the guys that left. 
and he's seen that you know just continue to to churn and churn and churn and just you know the train just keeps moving down the tracks so yeah i yeah i think it's interesting like you said with james coley though like you're talking about a first-time coordinator kind of being handed the keys to a ferrari at this point like a first-time driver and can he you know take over the play calling duties in these big spots and there's no obviously the head coach is the guy who takes the blunt of the the brunt of the blame but the offensive coordinator is next in line right he's the guy that everyone's complaining about why would you call that play because you know the average college football fan isn't focused on defensive schemes so if the defense is screwing up they're not really hitting on it but everyone can recognize, oh, we should have passed in that situation or we should have ran in that situation, yep. you know. So it only takes a couple missteps to be the most hated guy in town. And he's the guy that's most likely to me to be the fall guy if something goes wrong in Athens this year. Not that there is. I do think Georgia's the team to beat in the East. Oh, yeah. But I do think it's interesting that maybe Smart didn't look outside to maybe bring a guy in who's got the more experience, especially on a team that could be in position to make a run in a national championship. Yeah, it, you know, it's one of those tough sort of keeping your pulse on 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 the the heartbeat of the team. Do you bring in a guy from outside or not? It's obviously one of those really tough, you know, no perfect answer sort of questions. And so we'll see what happens with them this year. I hesitate to say they're going to get over the Bama hump. Um but I think they're going to be there to get their chance to try. I think that's probably, you know, the best that you can say at this point of the year is I think I, I, I have a great feeling that they will get their chance to beat Bama again this year. Well, and I think they, that's a good uh, segue into what's your, what's your order of finish in the East? Zach? So yeah, Georgia first, obviously. Um, I think it's pretty readily apparent from what I've been saying here. I think Florida is the second best team in that, that division. Um, I think it's between Tennessee and Missouri for number three. I'd put Tennessee third, Missouri fourth, just for um, just for the sake of it. I, I think you could flip-flop those two. I think it really depends on who wins that game, the game between those two teams to see who finishes where. Um, I'd put Kentucky fifth, South Carolina sixth, and Vanderbilt seventh. Um because like I was saying about Muschamp, no, I think it, he could he could coach his ass off this year, and that team is still going to have a hard time getting to six wins. Just to be clear, Zach and I haven't discussed these orders ahead of time, but it's funny because I've got the literal exact same SEC East standings, oh, wow. which is a big surprise, and it surprises both of us because there's been so much over the years where we've rarely agreed on winners of divisions, more or less top to bottom, one through six or seven. So I've got the exact same. I think Georgia takes the division, Florida number two. I went back and forth on Tennessee and uh, Missouri for three and four, but I'm high on the balls. Yeah. While they're returning production, I think they're going to make a charge up the standings and finish third and really, really point towards a pretty big 2020 where they might actually – have a shot at the SEC East with the turnover that Georgia is going to have after this season with all the early entrants that are likely headed to the draft, uh, Missouri four. And then I do think agree. I, I think I'm a little higher on Kentucky. I think we're both a little higher on Kentucky than, than, uh, the, the media was. I don't think they're going to slip to next to last. I think they'll slide into fifth. And I think South Carolina slips to sixth. I think it's going to be a tough year for the Gamecocks, uh, with their schedule and the, with the way their schedule sets up, it wouldn't be, 
a shock to see them miss a bowl game entirely this year. And then Vanderbilt's going to be bringing up the rear and as a dangerous number seven, though, I got to say, it wouldn't surprise me if Vanderbilt was able to pull an upset or two and still get to a bowl game, but it's going to be certainly an uphill battle. Totally. Well, on that note, I'm flummoxed that we actually agree on something. Um, So we're going to take a quick moment while I catch my mind back. And uh, after we come back from the break, we'll talk about the SEC West. So stay tuned. Welcome back from the break to the Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. We're here talking about the SEC this week. Last segment, we just talked about the uh, SEC East. Now it's time to dive into the SEC West. And as the media preseason poll told us, Arkansas is probably going to finish dead last in this division this year. And I have a hard time saying otherwise, honestly. This is an Arkansas team that really struggled last year to even get to to two and ten, was it? I think it was. Um, Yep. Yeah. And, you know, Chad Morris is a great coach. I think he's a, he's a really smart coach, a decent choice for this program, did great work at SMU. But, um, you know, I, I, at the same time, it's an uphill battle when you're trying to do anything in the, you know, the SEC West, especially. It's just such a tough division that, you know, they have six returning players on both sides of the ball. And I'm hesitant to say that any of that's going to make a, a bit of difference for them. It was a, I thought it was a pretty weird hire just because Chad Morris had always been the guy who was all bark and no bite to me, if that makes sense. He had always been really talked up since his days as an offensive coordinator at Clemson, but he went 14 and 22 in three years at SMU. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about a guy who's eight games under 500 gets an SEC coaching job like this. And then if there was relegation in college football, Arkansas would be in the Sun Belt this year. Yeah. That's how bad they were last year. They would have fallen far because not only were they 2-10, and 10, they went 0-8 in the SEC. You're talking about losses to Colorado State and they're on the road. And then we saw North Texas come to Fayetteville and just kick Arkansas's ass yeah, last year. I mean, 44 to 17, one of the most embarrassing results across college football last year. And not to take anything away from North Texas, but at Arkansas, you don't lose to a program like North Texas by 27 points at home. That's not ever supposed to happen, no matter the rebuilding you're doing or anything like that. They were embarrassed. Yeah. And they should. I think Arkansas is going to be better this year because they can't really get much worse, no. to be fair. <laughs> the only way to go uh, uh, when you're in the cellar, the only way to go is up. So, um, a big detriment to the Razorbacks last year was they really couldn't figure out quarterback play, um, whether it was Connor Nolan or Ty Story or Cole Kelly or whoever was the quarterback for the Hogs last year. None of those guys could get it going. And it's difficult to run the type of offense that Morris wants to run when your quarterback play is as bad as it was last year. They've got some good options this year, though. You know, you got Ben Hicks who was an SMU graduate transfer, has the familiarity in Morris's offense. You got Nick Starkle coming from Texas A&M. Two guys who have some starting experience who should provide at least somewhat of an upgrade at that position for them this year. And if they can take a step forward at quarterback, then the Razorbacks have a shot at really competing to climb out of the cellar and maybe compete for six wins. I don't think they're quite going to get to six wins this year, and I do still think they probably end up last in the SEC West. 
but I do think there will be some tangible signs of progress to at least remove some of the heat from Morris that he felt after just one year. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, it's really hard to put that much heat on a guy like that after one year. Um, and I think we could see something similar to what Morris had at SMU where his first year there, they were 1-11, and you gradually saw the progression. I, I think it's also very dangerous to put just uh, too much stock in a coach's career record without sort of parsing down the nuances of what they did over time at the programs that they were at. And Morris definitely did improve that SMU team. So, um, it you know, it's not like a Gene Chizik where he was just absolutely ghastly at Iowa State but got hired at Auburn anyway. But, um, it, you know, it is something where you do see that, you know, the growth potential there. Um, I don't think that growth is happening this year. I don't think, you know, I think their ceiling is probably four or five wins for this team. Having to go to both Alabama and LSU is, you know, if they could have, well, you can't have not have either of those teams on your schedule. They're your divisional opponents. Um, but the fact that they have to travel to both Tuscaloosa and to Baton Rouge just makes it that much harder. You know, it just ups the degree of difficulty that much more for them. So, yeah, I, I, I think the seller is about the only place that you can put this team. Yeah, I think I think they lose to Alabama or LSU regardless of where the game is played i think the the tougher thing is having to go to like old miss in the second week of the season that's a game that should be a toss-up between two teams that are competing for the seller and they got to go on the road so already yeah. advantage old miss right so i think we probably both agree though i think arkansas is going to be fighting to to really if they could get to six wins that'd be a huge step in the right direction yeah. for chad morris and would really take away some of the heat uh but speaking of old miss um, yeah they're uh, certainly an interesting team as well. Speaking of coaches who could see the clock beginning to tick for them, I think Matt Luke, uh, now especially the clock begins ticking for Ole Miss because you're talking about a team who's no longer on probation. So he kind of had two years that you could consider year zeros if you felt so inclined because yeah. they were you know, ineligible for the postseason. They had the scholarship reductions and were really fighting an uphill battle with transfers and stuff like that. So, but now the clock begins ticking. There's no more excuses. It's time to it's time to show what you got, right? And this is an Ole Miss program that's really invested um, in the past to try to build to be one of the SEC West premier teams, and that's where they were headed with Hugh Freeze before everything happened there. They were a really competitive team in the West. Uh, they've beaten Alabama two years in a row. We're competing for some really upper echelon bowl games. We're a freak fourth and 25 conversion by Arkansas in 2015 away from winning the SEC West um, for the first time. So it's they lost a lot, though, if, yeah. you, if you really look at their team, particularly, you know, a receiver losing guys like DK Metcalf and A.J. Brown um, and Demarcus Lodge, you know, losing all those guys. Losing Jordan Tiamu, who's I think one of the more underrated quarterbacks in the country, in my opinion, last year. Matt Corral's a guy who was really highly touted coming out of high school. He'll get his opportunity to take over the offense. Um, Scotty Phillips at running back's a guy they'll be able to really lean on, having lost all the talent they lost at receiver and with a young quarterback. That's a luxury. 
but it all will really come down to, you know, obviously the offense I think is going to take a little bit of a step back, and this was an offense that was top 10 in the country last year. But can the defense really move forward or not this year is the big question. You're talking about one of the worst defenses in the country. They brought in Mike McIntyre from Colorado to take over um, the defense and really hope. And there's some key, there's some nice pieces on that side of the ball. Benito Jones at defensive tackle in particular is a really nice player. But it's going to take, I think, a pretty significant stride on defense because I think they're going to take a big step back offensively because of all they lost. It's going to take a big step forward on defense if Ole Miss wants to fight for bowl eligibility this year. Yeah, and I think out of the gate, they set themselves up with a hell of a tough test going at Memphis. Um, because as we talked about in the Group of Five preview, they're a team that both of us are really high on being competitive in that conference once again, um, in the American Athletic Conference, that is. So, I, you know, I could see them losing that game right out of the gate. Um, one thing I find really interesting, you mentioned Matt Luke is kind of, you know, he's on the short leash right now. And I think it's really interesting that he hired new coordinators on both sides of the ball who are former head coaches. Um, cause I think that's going to make the clock like, you know, there's some prevailing wisdom that getting a guy with experience like that can, you know, help elevate your, your program and help elevate that side of the ball. And at the same time, it opens the door for your replacement to be right there. Um, you know, we've seen it at other schools in the past, whether it's a guy, you know, leaving town and the next guy stepping up into that position or the guy being fired and the next guy stepping up into that position. In this case, I think Luke might have just hired his replacement in either McIntyre or Rodriguez. And... Uh, you know, for better or worse, I think that's going to be a really interesting situation to coach into next year. Yeah, I think that's a fascinating point. Kind of a fascinating coach's room, too. A couple of guys who got the head coaching experience, and a guy in Matt Luke, who a lot of people thought was maybe a little in over his head, getting yeah. the old Miss head gig to begin with. He's done a good job holding that program together, but I don't know that he's the guy that's going to be able to take them to the next level or not. For sure. And, you know, on uh, staying inside that state, uh, looking at Mississippi State as well, they were picked to go fifth this year, um, which I think is probably pretty fair, um, given the fact that they lost a lot from one of the best defenses in the country. Um, that's going to be a really huge transition for them this year, and I think that's probably an even bigger loss than losing Nick Fitzgerald at quarterback. Um, you know, they have Keaton, they have Keaton Thompson at quarterback. They have, um, you know, Tommy, Tommy Stevens coming in as the transfer from Penn State, I think gives another, you know, really interesting option. You sort of have one quarterback who's a better runner, one quarterback who's a better passer when, um, you know, obviously more heads RPOs, you know, heavy system really wants a guy who can put it over the top on a defense and who can beat you with their legs. So um, it'll be interesting to see, first of all, which one of those guys ends up snagging the starting job. I think if I were to put, you know, any money on it, it's probably going to be Stevens taking it over um, just because he does have, you know, a better long ball and better you know, completion rate, better accuracy overall than, than Thompson showed in his 
uh, you know, chances to start last year or, you know, over the past couple years. Right. Yeah. I, Mississippi State was probably one of the most disappointing teams to me in college football last year. This was a team who had was just loaded. And I think it's interesting test case of what would have happened if Dan Mullen would have stayed another season in Starkville. Would Mississippi State have really been a team that competed for the SEC West last year? Because they were a better team than their 8-5 and five record show. They should not have lost five games. They had too much talent on this team to lose five games. And the big problem was offensively, they just could not score. Yeah. That's defense, the best total defense in college football last season. And then, you know, they had plenty of games. Like they played Kentucky, they scored seven points. They scored six against Florida. They scored three against LSU and they got shut out against Alabama. So you're talking about their four regular season losses. They scored 16 total points in those four games. I mean, that's unacceptable. And part of the reason they brought in Joe Moorhead was that he was one of the more highly sought-after offensive minds in college football. He was a the guy they thought that could take their offense maybe to the next level to team with a defense that was going to be nasty last year, and they obviously were nasty last year. Yeah. And they still went 8-5. and five. That was really disappointing. And I, I think the clock's starting to tick on Moorhead. I don't think he's on the hot seat or anything like that. But it'll be interesting if he's another one of those guys that maybe was better off as a coordinator. Uh, I think Nick Fitzgerald was kind of an odd fit yeah. in the system that Moorhead wanted to run mm -hmm. last year. Um, but, you know, a good head coach is able to adapt to that and still, you know, put together some stuff that, you know, fools other defenses in their game plans and everything. So it's going to be difficult with all they lost, losing guys like Montez Sweat and Jeffrey Simmons up front, losing Jonathan Abram at safety. They lost a lot of guys, particularly on defense, and not to mention replacing a decorated quarterback in Nick Fitzgerald. I think Mississippi State is going to be a team that takes a bit of a step back. I don't think they're going to be competing with the top four. I think the top four is pretty well set in the SEC West this year in some order. And I think that they're going to be more – they're going to be closer to Ole Miss and Arkansas than they are to catching up with those four. I think that's harsh but possibly fair. Um, the one thing that does kind of give me a little bit of excitement is they have both their top running backs uh, returning. Both Kylan Hill and Nick Gibson are returning to Starkville this year. And so – you know, whichever quarterback does step into the full-time role, they're going to at least have a couple of really experienced guys in the backfield to to ease a, a little bit of that transition. Um, that said, I, I think you're right in, in that, you know, the Bulldogs are probably closer to an Ole Miss than they are to, you know, some of the teams right above them in that, you know, the division Auburn and Texas A&M, those type of teams. Um, so yeah, I, I think, you know, I think bowl eligibility is still well within reach for this team. I wouldn't put them in, you know, any sort of missing the postseason scare. You know, I wouldn't put fans there on alert for that, but you know, I, I think six and six in the regular season is very possible. I think, you know, that one or two fewer wins this year is probably what's going to happen there. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think they're still a bowl team, but I, again, I don't think they're going to be um, a team that's really a serious threat to the top four. Yeah. Now, speaking of those top four, um, you know, the, the team that 
the media put in there at number four is Auburn. Um, and Auburn is always one of those really interesting cases. They have one of the most experienced offensive lines in the entire country. And I think it all sort of spirals out from that because obviously you've got a new quarterback starting, um, but you have a lot of talent pretty much, you know, everywhere else on that side of the ball. So um, the fact that, who you know, who steps in at quarterback is going to have good protection is going to be a great place for that team to start. And that's a good building block for them. Um, likewise, you've got a defense that, you know, does return two thirds of its, you know, um, productivity from last season has seven starters back. Um, you know, they're really built for one of those Auburn sort of surprise come out of the woodwork seasons, I think. Um, and at the same time, it's just a, another really tough schedule. You know, they have, um, you know, they're always going to get Georgia from, you know, in, a, you know, interconference play or interdivisional play rather. Um, but they also got uh, Florida this year. They have to go at Florida. You obviously got LSU and Alabama, and then they also opened the season with Oregon. You know, it's their second straight year of playing a really highly ranked Pac-12 team in a neutral site. And honestly, I think this, okay, for those of you who don't listen to the podcast, full disclosure, I'm a duck. And I think this Oregon team is probably built better than Washington was last year to give Auburn fits. And so, you know, I think this is an Auburn team that could be really great. They could very, you know, it's a team that definitely has the potential to do what they have in the past and just absolutely swoop in and surprise everybody in the SEC West. They've done it before. We've all seen it. I know you absolutely have hated it every time it's happened, John. Um, But it is possible. And at the same time, I think this is probably a team that's closer to seven wins than 12 wins. Yeah. The thing with Auburn and I think too many people are talking about this being a potential surprise year for it to be a patented Auburn surprise year. You know, Malzahn's first year at Auburn, they were coming off a three and nine season and they ended up playing in the national championship game. Nobody saw that coming. Too many people are trying to get ahead of this. Hey, this could be one of those years for Auburn for me to actually think it's going to be one of those years. I kind of agree with you where it's probably going to be a 7-8 win Auburn team this year. And I don't think that's good enough for Malzahn to retain his post. Mm. I think they've got to be competitive in the SEC West. I think they've got to – I think it will come into November really deciding what happens. If he can pull out what he did two years ago and upset both Georgia and Alabama at home to finish the season, then maybe that saves him. But if he can't do that, then I think there's a decent chance that this is it for him. Mm-hmm. And he really bet on himself, right? You know, he took the the reduced buyout to stay at Auburn this year and really pushed all his chips to the middle of the table. And I want to comment on the schedule real quick. You briefly were talking about it. One of the oddest schedules in college football They do not play a home game in October and they do not play a road game in November. Yeah. That's like, that's very odd way for the SEC to set that up. So they get Florida on the road, a bye week and then Arkansas and LSU in October. And they finish the season at home against Ole Miss, Georgia, Sanford and Alabama. So very odd scheduling for them not to get a home game in October, uh, but a benefit that they get, you know, 
four straight home games to finish the season, uh, particularly with Georgia and Alabama both coming to all, both coming to Auburn to finish the season in what could be two huge games. I think the Oregon game is probably the biggest game of the year for Auburn because it's really going to set the tone, right? If they can come in with a new quarterback, whether it's Joey Gatewood or whether it's Bo Nix, and they can knock off an Oregon team that many people are projecting to be the favorite in the Pac-12 this year, you and I included, that's a huge confidence booster for an Auburn team. And then they get Tulane and Kent State two nuts before they go to College Station to take on Texas A&M. Yeah. So I think that could be a turning point game. I could see – them really developing some big momentum if they're able to ups, if they're able to knock off Oregon uh, remains to be seen whether that would be an upset or not. Um, but if they lose that game against Oregon, I can also see it going quickly in the other direction. Oh, for sure. Yeah, it, it's very much that litmus test game to see where is this Auburn team at, how is the new talent going to step up, and does this really have the potential to be the sort of you know surprise season that as you said, a lot of people are really trying to, to make that call. Um, so yeah, I, and obviously once again, as a duck, I sure hope that that doesn't happen. I know you're not crying as a tide fan about that, John. Um, but at the same time, this is obviously one of those teams. that's definitely more in the top four than down in that bottom three, I think. Um, and honestly, yeah, I, 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 I th- yeah, I, I, I think it could very easily sort of crater down to that seven win level, but I think that's a floor for them. I'd be shocked if they lost more than five games in the regular season. Another team that's looking really good this year in the SEC West is Texas A&M. It's another program that people have really, you know, talked up as a potential sleeper here this year. You've got Kellen Mond coming back at quarterback. Um, You know, it's Jimbo Fisher's second season there um, coaching this team. And, you know, we've seen him, you know, just sort of bring teams up to speed really quickly. We saw it happen at Florida State. And I think a lot of people are really um, high on this team having that potential. Do you think there's any chance that Texas A&M is going to be pushing Alabama for the the championship this year? I think A&M's probably a year away. I do think that they're going to be competitive. Uh, They were obviously competitive last year, um, finishing second in the West last year. But if you look at their projected starters on – their projected top 22 on offense and defense, one senior – among those 22 starters. Yeah. I think that's very telling for A&M. And I think if they're able to, you know, avoid the early entrant bug to the draft next year, and they're able to bring those back, then the Aggies are going to be a really fascinating team in 2020 that really could compete, not just for an SEC championship, but a potential playoff berth in year three for Jimbo. He's obviously got things brewing in College Station. Um, you know, they won nine games last year, which is a really big step in the right direction. Had that thrilling overtime games that I think just ended a few hours ago yeah. against LSU at the end of the regular season. Um, and then they, you know, walloped NC state and the Gator bowl. So I do still think they're probably a year away, but they do have the advantage that Alabama has got to come to college station in October. Um, but you want to talk about a tough schedule. Look at Texas A&M. We talked about South Carolina's tough schedule, but A&M has got to go to Clemson. They play Auburn at home. They play Alabama at home. 
Then they finished the season going to Georgia and to LSU yeah. in back-to-back weeks to finish the regular season, which is just absurd. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah that, that's cool. That is fate. absurd scheduling. That yeah, is... it is. I mean, that the SEC did them no favors whatsoever to have to play a November 23rd game against the best team in the SEC East right before your rivalry matchup with LSU to finish the season off. And then, you know, not to mention they have to play Clemson on the road in week two. Yeah. You know, so it's a really tough schedule. So I could really see A&M improve and still end up finishing with a worse record than last year just because of how brutal their schedule really is. You know, it's going to be an uphill battle for them to win any of those road games against Clemson, Georgia, or LSU that I just talked about. And then Alabama is always going to be a tough, um, a tough win, even at home. Exactly. So you could really see them easily finish eight and four in the regular season for the second year in a row. And while that would be disappointing for fans in College Station, if you look at it objectively, you look at the schedule, an eight and four mark would be really impressive with what they've got to face. Oh yeah. And as you said, it sets them up really well for 2020 and what that real potential comes. Because if you have a couple of teams that, you know, after the bowl game have nine wins two straight years and those players are really starting to develop that, you know, that winning mentality and that culture of consistency, um, you know, it could pay real dividends the following year. Um, but yeah, I'm with you. It, they're a team that could very well be just that one year away. Um, now another, now a team on the other hand that's really playing for right now, that's LSU, certainly. If we're looking at that group of, you know, three challengers right behind Alabama trying to take down the King, I think LSU is the best position to do so in terms of just how much talent they have returning back on both sides of the ball. Um, you know, we talked about Tennessee being a a really loaded team and LSU is right up there with them. Just incredible balance, eight starters back on offense, eight starters back on defense. That includes Joe Burrow back at quarterback who, you know, I think really, um, opened some eyes last year when, with what he did against UCF. Um, say what you will about the Knights being a group of five team, but you know, he took his best punches at the beginning of that game. He was getting his ass kicked and he looked just like hot garbage. And then, you know, he got punched in the mouth and he came back like a completely different person. It was like they Jekyll and hided him right to like glory. And I think if he carries that sort of mentality and plays at that same level consistently throughout 2019, Bama better watch out because LSU is always going to have a good defense. Um, You know, they have consistently been a top 10 defense over the past five years. Um, I don't think any of that's going to change with the amount of talent they have coming back. And so really that X factor is, is, you know, did we get one fleeting moment of glory from Joe Burrow? Or what, you know, did, did, was that his, you know, moment right before the clock struck midnight? Or did he, you know, turn a new leaf? Was that a chrysalis for him that, you know, made, made the caterpillar turn into a butterfly? I think that's a great point. If you really look at the way he finished the season, too, after the Alabama game, 
uh, finished the regular season against Arkansas Rice and A&M. His numbers looked really good. He looked like a different guy there. Yeah. And then it kind of culminated in an excellent performance um, in the Fiesta Bowl, getting LSU that 10th win and beating a Central Florida team that hadn't lost since 2017. You know, so it was, you know, really impressive. Or wait, 2016, yeah. I'm sorry, because I went undefeated in 17. I am off here. Anyway, I agree that L- I'm very high on LSU this year. Um, I, the problem for LSU is, man, they just haven't been able to beat Alabama and that's the next step for Orgeron. He's as good as last year was winning 10 games. It's kind of telling to me how excited LSU fans were to go 10 and three last year to how that program is viewed now is how they were viewed, you know, what, eight years ago when they were competing for the national championship eight years ago, 10 and three looks is looked as a disappointment 2018, 10 and three is looked at as a crowning achievement. Yeah. I think that's very telling and where this program's ended up. Um, they just, I mean, you're talking about eight straight losses now to Alabama. I mean, that's where we're at. They've scored 10 points combined in the last three meetings. So whatever, and every single off season, it's been the same, Zach. It's been, Hey, we got a new offensive coordinator in here. We're really going to change it up really going to go more to a spread and we're really going to finally figure out how to score more than 10 points on Alabama in a single game. And then, you know, they go into it. What was it last year? Right. I mean, we're talking about an LSU team two weeks. We heard LSU, this LSU, that this is going to be the year they're really going to give Alabama a game. And then, you know, 60 minutes later, final scores 29 to zero. And it's more of the same, right? I do think LSU is going to be a better team this year. I don't think they're quite going to get over the Alabama hump. It's unfortunate that this might be the team that has the best shot at really challenging Alabama, and they've got to go to Tuscaloosa this year. Yeah. It had been better off having that flip-flop where they played in Tuscaloosa last year and then this year getting Alabama at home. So I think that's probably the difference, if nothing else, in the SEC West race is that Alabama gets that game in November against LSU at home, and I think that's a big difference. But I do agree with you that you know this is going to be a great defense. Grant Delpit might be the best defensive player in college football at safety. I'm a huge fan of his his game. They've got talent at linebacker. They got talent on the defensive line. The offensive line's finally starting to figure things out again. That was a big thing Ordron had to do when he got to Baton Rouge was rebuild both lines. They were really thin on both lines from uh, Miles's Les Miles's recent recruiting classes. So the talents there, I think LSU is going to be very competitive. I could see them easily going eleven and one with the one loss coming in Tuscaloosa. I think we'll get a really good indication of how good this Tigers team is early on in the season because week two they go to Austin and play Texas. Yeah, that's going to be a really great game for them as well. Um, we have a couple of those big litmus tests on the schedule, and that's a huge one for LSU. Um, but I want to touch on something quick before we we actually go to Alabama in earnest. I think it's interesting that you brought up the fact that, you know, LSU has had the, you know, a hard time scoring on Alabama in recent years, and they continue trying to go to that well of figuring out how to score more points. How the hell did they beat Alabama the last time they did it? Was field goals and keeping them off the scoreboard? What was that? A six-three game? A nine-three game? It was something nine-six. Nine-six. Yeah. Okay. Kickers got a little bit more work than I was giving them credit, but you know, in the end, the, LSU is not going to beat Alabama by by turning into a 50-point-a-game team. They're going to beat Alabama by beating Alabama the way they beat Alabama the last time they did, which is 
continuing to feel one of the best defenses in football and doing it for a full 60 minutes against an Alabama team that proved in their rematch that they can flip a switch. So, See, I think, though, Zach, I think therein lies the issue and what's held LSU back, though, is you look at eight years ago when they won that the game of the century in Tuscaloosa in that defensive slugfest. You look at that. LSU's tried to be that same team for eight years. Look at how different Alabama looks offensively than they looked eight years ago. They're no longer the team that's three yards in a cloud of dust. It's going to dominate you on defense. They've got a, They've had three straight years where, or four straight years where the offense has been among the best in college football. You know, ever since Lane Kiffin arrived um, in 2014, the offense has really started revving up. Nick Saban saw the changing tides of college football and really changed. And that's how great programs, that's how great coaches stay at the top is they're willing to adapt. LSU hasn't been willing to adapt. Ed Orgeron keeps talking about being willing to adapt to a more up-tempo kind of pace, but is he ever going to actually do that or is old habits going to hold him back and hold LSU back from really – moving forward. I don't think you can beat Alabama anymore the way LSU's been trying to. I think if they could, they would have done it in the last eight years. Yeah, okay. I think that's totally fair. And uh, it, it's a really salient point to make because you're absolutely right. They're not playing the same Alabama team they did eight years ago. Um, and it's a great question to ask. Is LSU really that different than the, the LSU team that knocked off Bama all those years ago and honestly Alabama is definitely much more revolutionized at this point I think the players that LSU has right now could certainly start to take that turn and that's why I really think Burrow is that linchpin like if he really is playing at the level we saw at the end of last season they can make that noise if he kind of goes back into the shell that we saw when we first saw him, you know, taking the field for this squad after his transfer, probably not so much. So, yeah, um, as much as, you know, defense is going to, to play a major part, the offense is going to have to keep up with whatever Alabama can do. Right. And, you know, Speaking of speaking of Alabama, I say it's a good segue into that. Let's talk. Um, last we saw Alabama was one of the more shocking results in the history of the college football playoff was Clemson rolling forty four to sixteen over Alabama in the national championship game. We don't have to talk about that too much though, because I think everyone's you know fully aware of uh, what happened in that game. Yeah. And I will say again for the record. I think that game was closer than the scoreboard indicated. I think Bill Conley's done some really good work on it. I don't think the gap's that big. Now, can Alabama bounce back? Nick Saban spent the whole offseason talking about the Alabama factor and playing to a standard. He was obviously disappointed with the coaching staff uh, late last season. He's made that point pretty clear. Um, obviously, there's a ton of talent back in Tuscaloosa. Offensively, they're going to be just as good, if not better, I would say, this year with Tua Tungavailoa back at quarterback. Um, all their top receivers back. You talk about Jerry Judy, Henry Ruggs, Devontae Smith, Jalen Waddell, as good of a one through four as there's probably ever been at the university and one of the best top four receivers in college football, if not the best wide receiver group. Um, a lot of talent still on the offensive line. I think the real big question mark for Alabama, what we saw them kind of get exposed late in the year was defensively. They were really soft in the middle of the defense. I thought um, we 
Before, if you were paying attention, it was pretty obvious most of the year. You're talking about an Alabama defense that usually finishes Zach in the top five to ten in college football, and they slipped to 16th last year. Yeah, you know, that's a pretty big slip for a Nick Saban defense. That's definitely something he was disappointed by. Um, I think the talent's there for this defense to really take another step forward, though. If you look particularly in the secondary, that's where they struggled. Obviously, Trevor Lawrence picked apart Alabama's secondary in the national title game, but getting Trayvon Diggs back from injury from last year, he that was a huge loss uh, when he broke his foot against Arkansas. That was a really big loss. Getting him back, he's a talented guy that's been on mock draft boards. Patrick Sertain coming back as a sophomore after getting the experience as a freshman. And a guy like Josh Job, who we saw get some reps in the national title game and actually looked pretty good. He just couldn't stop Justin Ross from making circus catch after circus catch. But there's only so much you can do as a defender when you're playing against a guy like that. Xavier McKinney at safety. Shaheem Carter back there at safety as well. Really talented group of defensive backs is where it starts. It's really going to come down to, to me, I think, can the defensive line weather losing a guy like Quinnen Williams, who mm-hmm. was as dominant of a defensive player as there was in college football last season, losing him and having a guy likely a true freshman in DJ Dale stepping in, you've got to think there's going to be at least a bit of a slide because of that. Um, and then at linebacker, there's already been some attrition there. Joshua McMillan recently diagnosed with a, I believe a torn ACL. They've actually said officially uh, as of the recording of this podcast, it looks like he's going to be gone for the season. So really testing their depth at linebacker again this year. I do still think Alabama's talented enough. They're still to me, the team to beat in the sec. And I'm really looking forward to them playing with a, a renewed focus and maybe a chip on your shoulder. Cause when you're at the top, Zach, what I can say is it's easy to kind of lose focus at the top, you kind of look like you kind of get that air of invincibility about you. And sometimes the best thing that can happen to you is you get your ass kicked. Totally. And that's what happened in Santa Clara. And I think Nick Saban will never admit to it, but I think part of him was probably happy to see that happen because he can drill that into this team all season long that, hey, you're not as good as you think you are. You've got to focus every single week or this is what can happen. Yeah. Oh, no. I, I, I'm sure – as much as Nick Saban loves to win, uh, the next best thing for him is having, you know, chalkboard material and uh, right. really being able to drill in the importance of the process. And, uh, yeah, this is outcome 1B possibility for him. I completely agree there. Well, on that note, you know, I started us off giving our order of standings to the SEC East, so I'm going to let you kick things off for the SEC West. You know, oddly enough, um, I completely agree with the media picks, which never really happens for me either, so it's been a very eye-opening SEC preview for me. I've got Alabama finishing first. I've got LSU finishing second. And one more comment about LSU, I've got LSU finishing second as 11-1. and one. I think that propels LSU into the college football playoff. So I think both Alabama and LSU are going to end up in the college football playoff. So we'll get two SEC teams because I don't know that a team will have a better 11-1 and resume in college football than LSU would because they would have that win over Texas and Austin in September, and their only loss would be on the road against an Alabama team who could easily be undefeated. So if they do go 11-1, and I think they got a really good shot at getting in as the three or four seed in the playoff. Um, A&M in third. Auburn fourth. Those teams to me are really interchangeable. It probably comes down to which team 
wins the game between the two. I go, I give the edge to the Aggies because they do get Auburn at home this year. Mississippi State five, Ole Miss six, Arkansas seven, but five, six, and seven. I think there's a decent sized gap between the top four and the bottom three. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm pretty close. Uh, definitely Alabama first. I think it's, you know, it's a toss up between LSU and Texas A&M for me, definitely. Um, I'm going to probably give that one to LSU because they have the game at home against uh, the Aggies at the end of the season. So LSU two, Texas A&M three. Uh, I, you know, I was kind of waffling back and forth um, between Auburn and Mississippi State. I think Mississippi State has potential if Tommy Stevens does take off in Joe Moorhead's offense to be decent. I, obviously, I don't think they're pushing for one of those top three spots this year or even top four. But I'd put Mississippi State four, Auburn five. I know that's not going to make you cry at all. Um, and then, uh, you know, I, I think Ole Miss having as much as they have coming back on defense is going to be enough to keep them above Arkansas. But I think those two teams as well are on shaky ground, both of them. So um, on that note, we're going to take one last quick break, and then we're going to talk about how we think the championship game is going to work out, how we think college football playoff and New Year's Six picks are going to work out, and then give you our offensive and defensive player of the year predictions. So stay tuned. Welcome back to our last segment of the Saturday Blitz podcast this week, everybody. We're talking about the SEC and we've just wrapped up our look at each of the teams in the East and the West. So now we're going to go into our championship game predictions, our offensive and defensive player of the year predictions, and talk a bit about what teams might make some of the major bowl games this year. So we were both pretty much in agreement that we're getting Auburn, or excuse me, I think we're both pretty much in agreement that we're getting Alabama and Georgia again this year in the SEC championship game. Um, how do you think that's going to transpire, John? I, man, it's it's been a toss-up two years in a row when these teams have met. Odds seem to be that Georgia would eventually be able to break through, right? If you have three consecutive games that are coin flips, eventually the coin's going to land Bulldog side up. But I still think Alabama's better than Georgia this year. So I, I give the edge to Alabama just because I think Alabama top to bottom has the better team um, than Georgia. I think, it's still, I think it's a matter of time before Georgia finally does break through um, and win a national championship under Kirby Smart. They just have too much talent. They're recruiting at too high of a level. They've come so close. I think eventually it's going to happen, but not this year. I think it's going to be Alabama again. I think it'll be a third straight kind of heartbreaking loss for Georgia in that setting um, in the same building really in front of, you know, practically their home crowd. So I, I'll give the edge to Alabama. Uh, maybe that's some of my biasness sneaking through as well, but I think Alabama wins the SEC and goes back to the playoff and it wouldn't be a college football playoff without Alabama being included. Yeah, it seems that way, doesn't it? Um, you know, bias or no bias, I think it's a smart pick to put Alabama in um you know honestly 
I think Bama is going to do more of a number on Georgia this year than they have in the past couple years. Uh, you know, they've been really close games. They've been really entertaining contests. I think we're going to get this sort of thing with Georgia this year that Bama got from Clemson last year after their, you know, repeated matchups against one another. You figure sometimes the coin's got to flip in your favor. But also sometimes the coin has to flip in favor of an ass kicking. And I think that's really that's what's going to happen for the Bulldogs this year. Um, I don't know that it's going to look 44-16, but I think you're going to have, you know, a multi-score victory for for the Crimson Tide in that game. And obviously, as you said, I think it's no shock at all that Alabama's probably going to be there in the college football playoff semifinals when all is said and done. Um, it's sort of a December tradition at this point, um, whether or not they win their conference. So, um, you know, on that note, I'd be shocked to see anything other than the tide among those final four teams. I'm a little hesitant to say that LSU is going to be right there with them, but knowing what the selection committee does, if they do end up at the end of the season 11 and 1 you're absolutely right that they're going to be there um the the precedent is there already where if you lose to the top team in the country and that's your only loss you're pro- you're going to make the field um yeah we've already seen two SEC teams in and that would be even more of a cut and dried you know, airtight case to put them in than I think it was for Alabama a couple of years ago. Yeah, I mean, you look at with LSU that have a marquee out of conference win on the road, and the only loss would be a road game to to an Alabama team that could be undefeated and might even be the number one overall seed at that point. So it'd probably be difficult. I don't think there'd be a team with a better one loss case than LSU in that yeah. instance. But you know, you never know because we could also have a weird year. We had four power conference teams undefeated or something right there and then LSU still gets relegated out I do still think that the SEC has a really good shot at getting four teams into the new year six for the second year in a row I think Alabama's and LSU already said we're gonna to me look like playoff teams I think Georgia uh will get into a new year six game as well and then you've got teams like Florida Texas A&M uh, both of those teams really fighting, I think, for that number four spot to maybe also get a New Year's six berth. It'd be interesting because I think if A&M goes eight and four with that schedule, I still think they're going to be really highly ranked, mm-hmm. uh, depending, I guess, on how some of those matchup goes. They get blown out four times, maybe not. Yeah. But if they're competitive against the likes of Alabama and Clemson, they end up eight and four, nine and three. That'd be probably, probably pretty difficult to leave them out. I completely agree. Um and that's the thing is with the SEC, you always get those schedules where it's just teams beating up on each other. We've talked about it with other conferences and our previews over this summer in terms of, you know, looking at divisions that could really cannibalize themselves out of a playoff spot. And the one thing that you like you can unequivocally say about the SEC is it seems like when one team is high, they are really high. And uh, you don't get that sort of punching everybody out that you see in other conferences because when these teams punch each other in the mouth, it just comes out as a net win for everybody. Um, You know, like it's two highly ranked teams playing each other to a damn near stalemate. 
is going to to shine favorably on everybody, including the other 12 teams that didn't even play him this week. So, um, yeah, I agree with you. I would be, I, I, I'd be shocked to see only two teams in the New Year's Six from the SEC. I think three is pretty much a lock. I think four is a very real possibility, as you said. Yeah, so moving forward, Zach, offense, defensive player of the year is who you got. You know, offense, I th- I, I'm going to be pretty vanilla. I think it's Tua Tagovailoa. I, I, I think he's a Heisman front runner. I think if you're, you know, it'd be shocking to see somebody win the Heisman and not win their conference player of the year award. And I think Tua is definitely one of those guys that's going to be right there in the race. So, uh, you know, I'm not going to belabor that point that much. I think everybody knows how great a player he is and, and what he can do on the football field. So, you know, defensive player in the year, um, I really like Justin Matabuke at Texas A&M at defensive tackle. Okay. Um, you know, with what they've lost on that defensive line um, this year, he's, you know, he's the one really veteran guy who's returning He's been a disruptive force in the past, and I think if Texas A&M is going to make any noise this year, which I really think they can, I, I if anybody's going to get that fourth spot in, in a New Year's Six Bowl, I'd say it's them. And I think Matabuke is going to be a huge reason why that happens. Man, I love that pick. I don't think a lot of people have really talked enough about how good of a player he is. So that's a great pool, great pick there. I agree with Tua as SEC Offensive Player of the Year. I think that's a pretty safe bet at the moment. It's pretty wide margin between him and whoever's next in line, whether that would be a guy like DeAndre Swift or Jake Fromm from Georgia, or even a guy like Kellen Mond if Texas A&M jumps up and Mm -hmm. is competitive in the SEC West. But I'll take Tua on offense, and there's no need to really belabor that any further either. There's Plenty of reasons for that. Everybody knows. Everybody saw him play last year. He's the favorite. Alabama wins the SEC. He's going to be Offensive Player of the Year again. Defensively, I I talked about him a lot already, and a big reason I like LSU a lot this year is because of how good Grant Delpit is. He's that kind of playmaking defensive back that we so often see at LSU, and he might be as feared of a playmaker defensive back as they've had since Tyran Matthew was roaming uh, the LSU secondary. I think he can have that type of season. And I think that could even produce some Heisman love if LSU really, you know, ends up as a team that's right there in the thick of the playoff race. So I'll take Grant Delpit as the SEC Defensive Player of the Year. Delpit is a great choice. I, I, when you were talking about him earlier, he was definitely somebody that I, you know, it perked up my ears and kind of came up on my short list as well. Um, so yeah, I think that's another spectacular look and I would not be shocked to see either one of those players win it, but at the same time, given the way the SEC is and with so much defensive talent in that division or in that conference, I wouldn't be shocked to see neither of them win it either. And you know, any number of players could take it. We've obviously got our favorites in terms of, you know, who we think has, you know, just that really great shot. But, you know, I think I think it could be a very much a dartboard pick this year, as it is every year when you have four or five really just top-shelf defenders coming out every year. 
Right. I mean, there's probably a dozen guys we could talk about for defensive player of the year this year, and it wouldn't surprise me if any of them ended up getting it. And you never know, too. There's dark horse guys every year that kind of fly up from off the radar and really dominate and get kind of thought of. Like I mentioned Tyron Matthew a while ago. He wasn't the guy who was on anybody's radar entering 2011, and then he had one of the best defensive seasons in the history of the game. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, maybe we'll be absolutely wrong in a a couple of months' time. But uh, I'm sure all of you out there on Twitter and out there in cyberspace listening to this will let us know through your social media avenue of choice how you feel about our picks and uh, what we got wrong when December rolls around. I'm looking forward to all of that hate. And uh, on that note, thanks so much for talking again, John. And thanks for, you know, a really fun summer of getting to preview all of these conferences. Uh, Next week, we're going to be talking about football in earnest, everybody, because it is upon us. I'm really looking forward to that as well. So be sure to get your rest. We're going to have a lot to talk about next week.